0: E
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome back to Tea Time. We are here for the second show of the day. That's right, this morning we had Judy and Michael in the studio talking about seniors and technology. Now this afternoon we have a topic that may trigger some of you, so we're just going to put a little disclaimer out there and we're going to get prepared to serve you a strong TEA this afternoon with Jason Schurz. So the disclaimer for Miss Liz's Tea Time live show. Miss Liz, myself, is going live using StreamYard. Before leaving a comment, please grant StreamYard permission to see your name at StreamYard.com. Please be advised that the content brought forward for any Tea Time show hosted by myself, Miss Liz, is always brought forward in good faith, however, may bring forward dialogue and opinions that are not representative of my platform. The facts and information are perceived to be accurate at the giving time of airing. All time guests and audience participants and are responsible for using their good judgment in taking any action that may relate to the discussion. The content brought forward may include discussion for some where they may be emotionally at risk. It is significant to note that this show is engaging in discussion forms only to offer and inspire awareness and connection and is not providing therapeutical advice. If you have any questions about this disclaimer or the panelist discussion, you may freely contact me, Miss Liz, through my email at bookingmissliz@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Moving forward, should you choose to voluntarily participate in today's show in any aspect, I, Miss Liz, welcome you. And should you find that the show is not made for you at this time, I respect that, and we'll see you at a later show at a later date and time. And again, all tea times are on Thursday this year, unless it's a rescheduled tea time. So let me get Jason in here. And let's have a good old strong cup of tea, but the, this, this afternoon's tea, we're gonna be talking about mental health, uh, addictions, really some hard, hard topics. So if you feel that it's gonna trigger you, please, I will not be offended if you do not tune in. So let's get Jason in here. I'm just gonna do a quick bio. So Jason Shries is a certified phys, phys, physical therapist and certified transformative coach that has gone through the full journey from childhood trauma to addictions and mental health problems, to jail and psychiatric care, to 12-step recovering and becoming a professional helping others. His story is painful and eye-opening, showing how the system pa- pathologists pathologist, normal human response to tra- tragic life circumstances and also showing how they really, there really is a way out for everyone. So let's get Jason in here and I'm going to grab a sip of tea. So welcome Jason.
0: Hi, thank you. <laughs> nice to be here. Nice to be. Here. I like I like the intro, you know, it was great.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I always yeah. try to do a little special for all of my guests. So Jason, if you'd like to share a little bit from where it began and and how you got to where you are today.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a long story and there's so many um there's so many facets to that and so many sort of different avenues, you know, and, and it all started, I guess, with the loss of my father when I was a small child, um, he was killed in an accident. And, um, when I was five years old and, um, I think from there, you know, life as I th- I guess, as I would imagine it to be, you know, for a small child in a, in a, in a family unit, you know, completely changed and became something very serious, very quickly, you know, um, so food was my first uh drug if you want you know it was the it was the escape from my self it was the escape from my experience it was the escape from my grief uh food was reliable consistent uh heartwarming comforting you know at the time which is what i needed you know um so you know i went off down that avenue of kind of uh of struggling with food and and compulsively eating and i guess as it makes sense that if a small child is, is compulsively eating consistently, then he's going to balloon in weight, which is what I did. So it became obvious on the outside that there was something not right. Um, so my mum, bless her and I, in all her attempts to soothe me and help me feel better. She took me to professionals to get me some help, you know, um, which happened to be the psychiatric system. And, um, because back then in the early 80s or late 70s even you know it's kind of like there was no internet uh you know you didn't just pull out your phone and search for help with uh grief you know it's kind of like you picked up what we call a yellow pages don't know if you had that in the u.s and it's like a list of local businesses you know and, and i guess you kind of searched under mental health or or something related, you know, and, and she found the, you know, maybe she even called the doctors. I don't know. And they, they pointed us into the medical system, you know, which is what psychiatry is. And, um, you know, I was medicated for depression, um, at that time. And uh, that's, that was my start in the psychiatric system, you know, of being sort of entered into the system. Um, I was then medicated for, um, weight control, you know with with our diet pills what we would call diet pills you know today um which didn't really do much because like food was my solution you know it was the comfort it was the, it was the peace in my life it was the reliable consistent friend that i'd found to cope with my grief so trying to um medicate my experience or to change you know change my relationship with food via tablets was never going to work because i needed the food more than anything you know because otherwise inside i was full of grief and emptiness and loneliness and separation and i just felt out of place in the world and wondered what on earth this thing was that people were calling life you know and how how come i'd been dealt such a bad one you know in this experience that i'd had and by this time my behaviour was pretty chaotic. I was being expelled from schools. I was stealing money. I was committing crime. I was—I was pretty outrageous, I guess. My mum would say, and uh, she'd lost control of me. That's for sure. Um, so you know, things just went consistently downhill from there into into drugs. You know, into addiction. I, I found drugs at a very as a very young teenager, and um, it was. It was the solution. It was the ultimate solution, finding drugs. You know, it was the very first time in my life since I'd started thinking at approximately five or six years old uh, to when I first found drugs at 13 or 14 years old. It was like the mind quietened. It went quiet. It was, it was a busy mind. It was full of overthinking and stress. And I'm sure anyone listening knows what that means, you know, to be an overthinker, to be stressy, to be constantly worrying, um that's what my life was like i was worrying about myself and my, the world and everything everyone else was you know i had a lot of issues so to speak let's say that you know my relationship to myself my relationship to the rest of the world and when i found drugs that all went away in an instant straight away it was gone you know and it was like uh, the ult- that's why i say it was the ultimate answer to everything you know and um so I was never going to stop. I wasn't planning to stop. I was going to planning to continue because I just found the answer to life. You know, it's kind of like it was really was the solution. Drugs were never the problem. There was always the solution. And um, if you think about it that way, that addiction is actually part of, is an intelligence of the system. You know, it is that we find a way to cope in adverse circumstances. That is just how it works. We always find a way. Any child born into any adversity, going through any traumatic traumatic event, finds a way to be okay in the depths of adversity, you know? The same way I found food, it was an intelligence of the system. The same way I found drugs, it was a further intelligence of the system. Yet, it's pathologized in Western medicine and and typical psychological understandings that it's somehow a disease or a a label or a diagnosis that something that's broken and needs fixing but actually it's not nothing broken it's actually intelligence of the system so you know I was then I was already deep into that world then you know I was I was medicated I was diagnosed I started to get labels started to get um diagnosed as having um, different personality disorders different things um and started to go to jail commit crime get into all sorts of chaotic things you know just to just to escape myself and just to just to feed my addiction i guess until i found rehabilitation and 12 steps at the age of 23 when um I was just told that I had this disease and I was quite naive. I was desperate, you know, I was desperate and I was naive. I was naive to the world of psychology and psychiatry. I was desperate because I'd been on the streets, been to prison, been taking drugs, and I was empty inside, you know? So I would have done anything to belong, you know? So when people told me you have this unexplainable disease and it wasn't the first diagnosis that I'd had, wasn't the first label that I'd been given. And uh, you can never drink or use drugs again. Um, and you need to go to meetings for the rest of your life, every single day, or something. You know, it's going. Kind of, I just said, okay, you know, I'll do anything because I was desperate and I was empty, and uh, and I wanted to belong. I wanted to be accepted. You know, so somebody told me something that had actually shown me some love and attention because it was the first time in my life I'd received some love and attention. Um, I was going to go along with it. You know, I was not going to argue with that. So I did, you know, I went to meetings for 22 years after that, you know, uh, and believing that I was an addict and that there was something broken in me, I had this unexplainable disease called addiction, along with all these other psychiatric diagnoses. But what happened was, you know, after I went into rehab, I stopped drugs and alcohol. I mean, I was quite sure I didn't want to do that anymore. I knew but I didn't stop with everything else. You know, it was like, uh, addiction is like a -a whack-a-mole. You know, you go into rehab for drugs and you start eating food and you put the food down, you start picking up sex and relationships, you stop the relationships, you start chasing money. You know, Because like I said all along, addiction was intelligence. You know, it was dealing with a further, deeper issue, but that was never addressed. You know, that was never addressed. Control steps gives you a way of coping, but it really doesn't help you understand who you are or how your experience is created from that perspective. So, unbeknown to me, you know, I picked up food, I ballooned in weight, I gained 150 pounds in 12 weeks. Uh, Before I knew it, I was 350 pounds going to meetings smiling saying my life is great because I'm not taking drugs anymore you know but I'm 350 pounds I look at myself in the mirror and I just want to commit suicide because I feel so bad about my body and my life you know completely unknown I didn't know what was going on you know I was just oblivious to that and then so then my progressive relationship with food and diets and the gym and, and and crime and chaos and all sorts of stuff i kept going to meetings and saying my life was great because that's what people seemed to do and that's what it looked i was told i needed to do but really things just got worse on the inside they didn't get better you know my internal relationship with myself and my reflection with the rest of the world was was at complete at odds consistently. You know, I felt in, I felt in, you know, that committee that I talked about when I was younger that went quiet when I first took drugs. You know, that was there. It was present in my life. So I had this, um, what would you call it? You know, difficult relationship, challenging relationship with people, the world, and myself. You know, I always felt challenging. I was always trying to fix myself because I believed I was broken. I was always at odds with somebody because they were mirroring or reflecting back to me something that was that was um at dis-ease within myself you know and that's kind of how i how i lived for a long time in and in some form of escapism whatever form of escapism i could find that was not going to be drugs or alcohol i would do it and um that's why i became a psychotherapist because i really i went to therapy people said to me at meetings oh you've got some real problems you know it's kind of like not just addiction you've got other problems and i was like okay you know what do i need to get you know get a therapist people used to say i'm like okay so i got a therapist and i went to therapy and i and uh it was quite nice to be hurt, you know, it was quite nice to just to be sitting with somebody for an hour who seemed to show some interest in your life, you know, and I thought, oh, maybe if I did this thing, this therapy thing, um, you know, I, I could fix myself. You know that's kind of i could I could actually get a better perspective I mean if I really because I knew I was clever I'd been to private school uh, this was nothing to addiction was nothing to do with intelligence the two things are completely not mutually exclusive you know I was very intelligent I still suffered in the way that I did um so I kind of knew and i I looked up and I found a math you know I did a master's degree in in as well as many other qualifications in a psychodynamic um therapy called transactional analysis you know which is a um quite complicated theory, to be honest, you know, and, um, you know, I spent years going in and out of kind of looking at my trauma and my past and my childhood and all these things. And I, I, I shed a lot of tears and I, um, you know i felt darkness a lot of darkness because i kept digging into the past you know and i somehow thought that i could get a new relationship with the past you know that's what i was taught that's what i believed again naively not knowing anything you know it took me a lot of years to really come to an understanding of human behavior and the human mind of going in and out of this stuff you know, for like nearly 30 years, I guess, you know, now, um, to really say, I've got a good understanding of what happens, you know, to people who struggle. Um, so back then, naively, you know, I kind of did this, um, did this stuff and, and 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 got one training after another, after another. And at the end of each one, I kind of thought, I don't know anything about happiness. How can I help anyone else? You know, it's like I got the qualification, here's your certificate, you can go and help people now. And I thought, Yeah, I do have a conceptual framework and a theoretical understanding of of what I've been taught. But I don't know where the light switch is. You know, I don't know how to find happiness for myself. I, I don't really know what joy is for no good reason. I knew joy for getting a new car or joy for getting some money in the bank, but I didn't really know joy, what was really joy was, you know? I didn't wake up full of happiness and contentment. I woke up full of dread, you know? I woke up like full of um, a flaw, what I call a flawed mind, full of, you know, ideas about myself, of being broken, damaged, uh, having to be in therapy for years. I'd already been in therapy for years at this point. You know, i have been in recovery for years. I hadn't taken drugs for a long time, but I was still completely miserable and acting out on my addiction in different ways, you know? and And, and at this point, because I was a professional, I had to keep it quiet. You know, it became even more difficult to talk about what the way I behaved and the way I thought and the things that I believed about myself and the rest of the world um with anyone, because I had this professional front to keep and, and it's like and I knew these other therapists, and they were the same you know it's kind of like in in public they would talk a great story about addiction and how they were recovering, but in private, when they told you about their lives, it was just as messed up as mine was. they were behaving in ways that were not really showed they hadn't really found any answers in the same way that i hadn't really found any answers to suffering you know i couldn't i was doing some the bottom line is i was doing something i didn't want to do i was behaving in ways i didn't want to behave i didn't know why and i couldn't stop doing it you know
1: so so jason you you said this all started when your dad passed away do you think that that was due to trauma and grief that caught uh, that started it all or
0: yeah, and from my perspective now, absolutely, is related to that. You know, any form of adversity, any form of jarring experience, you know, intense adversity um, to the nervous system of a small child that hasn't yet developed any rational or cognitive ability to to even understand and isn't allowed to feel and grieve, isn't taught how to feel and grieve, you know, after that experience, will be just repressed. You know, it's kind of like, and then... You know we innocently kind of find ways to cope you know like i did with food and, and then all the other stuff is still going on there you know it's kind of like and, and and habitually it just becomes a way of being in the world as we grow and and that and the belief in myself as you know if we go on further i can talk more about spiritual stuff but it's like mm-hmm. the, the, yeah the let's
1: belief. get let's dig deeper because the story is what has gotten you to where you are today right like and I really want the viewers and the audience to understand that we have to have a hard life in order to make a better life. We need those hard moments to grow, you know? Um, and, and you've taken all of like your therapy and, and changed it and made a positive outlook where a lot of people will do therapy and they'll be like, you know what? I don't even want to go near that anymore. Where you've actually went deeper and started studying it. Have you always been interested in the the human human mind and behaviors and
0: I mean, you could call addiction the lost man's way to enlightenment. I sometimes say that, you know, it's kind of like, like you said, you need the contrast or the polarity of experience, the darkness to seek the light. You know, you need the suffering to seek the joy. It's kind of like, if your life is just mediocre, you're probably just going to go along with it. You know, it's like I'd had that much suffering that I was just interested in feeling better. You know, it's kind of like, it was that simple, really. I wanted to, I wanted to feel better. And from there, my growing interest and my love of, of other people suffering, you know, developed in in those processes, you know, love of helping people that are suffering or, or who had suffered the things that I had struggled with, you know, was, was where my passion grew.
1: Well, do you feel that because you went through this trauma, you're able to help people a little bit deeper than somebody who hasn't gone through it?
0: I, I think many people think that, and I think I thought that for a while. I don't think having suffered gives you any ability to help other people, but I think having suffered and taking it upon yourself to learn and understand your suffering and having got to a point where you can truly say you have experienced joy and happiness for no good reason, and then you can point other people to that, you know, is 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 important. Because I think many people train as a therapist, and I think Western psychological theories and particularly the medical psychiatric model don't offer any solution to people. In fact, they keep people somewhat perpetuated in the story of themselves. You know, as I did, you know, I'm not I'm not pointing the finger here because I did this, too. You know, it's like I don't think they offer any full solutions. You know, I think they offer a therapeutic space for people to be seen and heard, but that is not in itself a solution. You know, it's like but when you combine Western psychological theories and Eastern spiritual practice and understanding, there's a whole new um, space that's available for people to see themselves from a different perspective. And that's kind of what I did, you know, and that's where I feel uh, qualified to, you know, to be able to point people to their true nature or to a space or a place of happiness and contentment that's always true possible for anyone regardless of what they've been through you know
1: Well, we have a question here for you jason about your psychiatric uh uh, therapy so being in the psychiatric ward how did that affect you as an individual growing up
0: it's like i just said it just it, it was just another label another um well how I describe the the development and our, and our understanding of ourselves, this thing we're in that we call life, you know is that like we're born in the eyes of perfection, you know we don't actually know we're a body, a baby, a boy, or a girl, we've got no name, you know it's like we're just born as a seamless flow of sensations and perceptions then we get given a name and separation starts you know i have a name you have a name we're two separate people you know it's kind of and then from there the identity is developed you know it's kind of like and the identity like a child is not born knowing what eating disorders are you know it's kind of like it's installed it's given information from somebody with more information you know it's like so all the information what i call The programming is installed, you know, based on your level of adversity, or the amount of love that you get and connection. So being in the psychiatric ward was another what I call layer of wallpaper, you know, like over the top of my identity. Another thing that was broken, another thing that was wrong with me, another thing that I had to work out, something else where. Um, I had to be removed, you know, from society and sort of given medication and so on and stuff like that because I was not okay. Someone else had to make me okay. So it all contributed to this um, flawed ideas I had of myself being this broken individual that really had no hope, you know.
1: Do you feel that by acting out you were looking for, like, attention, affection and, you know, like somebody to hear you? Because you mentioned when you first started sharing your story that you wanted to be heard and yep. i totally get that because as a as a survivor of abuse and trauma myself i always wanted to be heard i wanted my voice to be heard and, and and i'm hearing that in your story as well jason that you wanted to be heard as a child and sometimes we we act out so that we can be seen and heard right
0: absolutely it's true you know like it, it it's it's an energetic experience of the body that, that comes out in the way that we behave speak or act you know it's kind of like that there's a there's a part of us that feels unseen right it's kind of like and that is experienced as a contraction or an energy in the body you know like you might feel if you feel unseen in a conversation you'll know it's oh my chest tightened or i felt a lump in my throat something happened you know i felt an energy in my body and then we start to think you know we project our thinking onto the other person they haven't seen me they haven't heard me And then we feel we feel the emotions of it you know it's kind of like this is the experience that's consistently happening when we're we are unseen right i mean the trauma is unseen that the person if if we're abused, it's kind of like the person abusing is not seeing us, you know, it's kind of like in that way. So we completely embody that experience of being unseen and then it grows into adult life where it keeps being triggered in, in everyday conversations or work or relationships, particularly, you know, it's kind of like so then we're constantly longing to be seen, you know, it's always there. So it's always a it's always a created in that early childhood experience, but then shows up in adult relationships, you know.
1: So what age were you when you finally realized, okay, this is enough and I need help?
0: Well, I guess there's multiple levels of that. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, at 23, I I went into rehab and 12 steps and I decided this is enough. I'd had enough. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, sick and tired of going to jail. I was sick and tired of committing crime. I was sick and tired of not being able to walk down the street without being arrested. That's one level, you know, and then there was multiple times that happened starting therapy, starting new trainings, doing things like the Hoffman process, the landmark forum, all these silent meditations retreats, looking for myself. Basically, all of this is look everything that I've ever talked about since the experience of losing my dad has been looking for myself. And that's what all human beings do. They they search for themselves. They innocently look on the outside, trying to fix something on the inside. That's what I did. And, um, I didn't actually find that myself, you know, I didn't have a connection to myself on purpose. You know, It wasn't. didn't know I was looking for myself. I don't think anybody knows they're looking for themselves. And in fact, we often hear the phrase, all the answers are within, but no one actually knows what that means. Usually it's kind of like, is it within where, like in my leg or my elbow, or what? <laughs> right? how do I find well, it? You
1: can come it? out at any time, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: So, and life is always guiding us back to ourselves, you know. It's kind of like, that's, I, I love the saying, you can never get enough of what you don't want. Because everything that is a, is annoys you is a reflection for you to look inwardly at something that's lacking within yourself, or apparently lacking, you know. Yeah. So I eventually had an experience where, after having a long list of qualific- therapeutic qualifications and psychological qualifications and letters after my name and years in practice helping people and so on i still wasn't happy and i um came across an understanding of something called the three principles which was a what I'd call a psycho spiritual explanation for our true nature by that was founded by someone called sydney banks who's now dead um, but he articulated his understanding of our true nature. And I, and I met a guy called Michael Neal, who was a coach in Los Angeles, and I ended up um, very serendipitously at his house, um, you know, like completely non-coincidentally. You know, It's kind of like that I ended up there. Um, and, you know, for the very first time in my life, and this is one of the things that I offer to everyone, you know, it's kind of like I, I listened and I thought, there's nothing wrong with me. You know, the first time, like there was something deep inside me that said, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I just think, you know, that's it. It's kind of like, I have a lot of thinking about myself. I have a lot of thinking about my my world. I have a lot of thinking about my life. I have a lot of thinking about my weight. Now, some. I mean, I haven't talked about some things. My relationship with food was that bad. I mean, I had seven cosmetic surgeries oh. trying to change the outside of my body to fix the inside to make me happy, you know, in- including being put to sleep in a third world country because it was cheaper and I was desperate, you know, to feel better. I, my relationship with food, my body was, was completely a mess. And that's kind of one that some of the, th- the-, the desperate extremes that I'd gone to, to try and find happiness on the outside, including money and relationships and weight loss and gym and exercise and everything that people do, you know, all the things that people do to find it. Now, in this experience i had with michael you know it's like there was a beautiful moment where i i just felt a complete calmness for the first time in my life and all the seeking that i'd done the very thing that had driven me to do psychotherapy the very thing that had driven me to do all those surgeries the very thing that had driven me to um you know doing crazy things for money having three jobs you know burning myself out in an attempt to get money to find happiness the very thing had taken me there and the very same thing you know i'd realized that you know, that I was okay. That I felt this experience that happened like that. It happened in a moment, you know, it did not happen in a long drawn out working on myself, fixing myself, doing practices, looking in the mirror, giving affirmations, writing gratitudes down, going to meetings, didn't happen in any of those things. Never, ever did that get me anywhere other than thinking I was more broken. But in a moment, in a moment of realization, You know, I just saw beyond the story in my own mind. I saw beyond that wallpaper that I talked about, the idea of myself. You know, like there's a part of me that's not broken. There's a part of me that's not damaged. There's a part of me that knows. There's a part of me that's never been damaged, you know. And it's like, and I saw through this, you know, what I call, when I talk to people, the video playing in my own mind, where I was the lead character, you know, I just saw that it was a video playing in my own mind. And and in the seeing of that, it was like a crack appeared in my whole reality and all the stories, all the thera- uh, all the psychiatric interventions, all the addiction addict label, the years in 12 steps, because at this point i have been in 12 steps 22 years, three times a week, four times a week, five times a week, believing I was an addict and that I had to do these things to be okay. I I just saw that none of it was true. So much so on such a deep level that I knew in those moments that everything I'd been seeking in all those other things was now at an end. I knew there was something in me that knew. I knew that I wouldn't go back to 12 steps. I didn't need to because there wasn't anything wrong with me. I didn't need to go to meetings to be okay. I was already okay. I knew that I wouldn't go back. And I, I was very difficult to... Uh, I struggled to find therapists. I had a therapist for seven years and I contacted my therapist from LA while I was there the the day after having that experience saying, I don't need therapy anymore. You know, I don't need to come. And it was like, so certain I was, you know, that I'd I'd experienced this peace and I couldn't articulate it at the time you know I really couldn't say what had happened to me but I just knew that I'd found something that I'd looked for my whole life you know And, and and I guess what I would call it now is a realization or an awakening you know of of the truth of who I am not through the lens of the of the system and that's why I kind of say in my talks you know how the system pathologizes normal human response to trauma you know like like a a, a lot of bits might piece together here you know about what i've said it's kind of like where i said a child isn't born knowing eating disorders you know the programming is installed and and in an innocent attempt to find help the idea of brokenness is installed into us you know it's kind of like and then it's somewhat iatrogenic and by that i mean it creates the very problem it sets out to solve You know, so by going into the system, you know, I'm told I've got these unfixable personality disorders, character traits, labels, diagnosis. I'm an addict. I'm all these other things, but they were just normal human responses to adversity. So they were pathologized normal human responses to adversity. They were given a label and the label, which is really just an explanation, becomes the cause. It can't possibly be the cause because it was only ever a label. None of these are, you know, there's no no medical test for mental illness. You know, there's none whatsoever. So, um, you know, I was walking around thinking these are really things that are wrong with me, not realizing that they were just descriptions of where I'd been at at the time, you know. And, and in the realization of this, it all just fell away. And that was my first, my first experience of being joyful and being content and calm and peaceful for no good reason. Nothing had changed, I hadn't got any more money, hadn't lost any weight, hadn't got a new relationship, but everything was good, you know.
1: When you and you bring up something really important Jason is the definition of the systems that were that are put on us. You yeah. know, we and we can question these systems and say, you know what, that's not that's not us. You know, because there's so many misdiagnoses. like you said there is no test to prove mental illness you know uh we have symptoms we have uh you know attitude mood swings and you know things that they can say okay well we think it's this we think it's that but they cannot really be precise and say you know what this is what you got yeah. and i think we really need to start putting that out there for mental illness. And that's how we can break the stigma is by saying, you know what, all these definitions from the systems are not helping us understand mental health because then people are just going on and say, well, I have uh, PTSD and I have DID and I have B- BPD, but they don't even understand what these diagnoses are because they're not, you know, they're not understanding themselves. And I think that and that's where the mis- miscommunication comes from the doctors as well and the systems is that they give us this diagnosis but they're not even sure if that's what it really is
0: yeah i mean this it's very easy to quantify this you might if you're hearing it for the first time you might think well that's not true you know it's kind of like but I can tell you for certain, right? Um, Thomas Insull was doc- Dr. Thomas Insull, neuroscientist. He was head of the National Institute of Mental Health for 15 years in the US. And one of his quotes, is: it says that we spent $20 billion on mental health, and we didn't even move the needle. He said there's no such thing as as mental illness. It's just a construct. There's, there's one thing, right? Um, Alan Francis, who was also one of the members of the task force, Dr. Alan Francis, psychiatrist, one of the members of the task force that created the DSM, um, also um, wrote a book, "Saving Normal." You know, and, and and now these people that have been involved in that don't take my word for this, look it it up for yourself. You know, it's kind of, it's all out there, all this information is out there, but we're so caught up in the narrative that's been, in the dominant, what I call dominant oppressive narrative that's been installed into us by the system that we don't ever look for this stuff, you know, we just believe it, you know, and it's like these people are leaders in this field and they're saying that it's not true, there's no such thing, you know. uh, It's recently, there's recently been a study by, Professor Joanna Moncrief, who's a teacher at King's College in London, she actually peer-reviewed all the studies on um, brain chemical imbalance for depression. There's no such thing as a brain chemical imbalance for depression. And anyone who thinks they have a brain—this was her words, not mine. This was, anyone who thinks they have a brain chemical imbalance has been misdiagnosed by their doctor, and they should go back and and speak to them about it because there's no such thing. Now wow. all this all this stuff is out there. You know, there's millions of in my own book that isn't finished yet. But like I wrote, you know, that there's there's thousands, if not millions, of people out there walking around believing that they have a brain chemical imbalance that are medicated. You know, and it's going, and they don't need to be. It's like um, the last one on this subject. You know, there's there's a lot more. I could go on forever. But like the book of woe, if you're really interested, the book yeah. of woe by Gary Greenberg, who's a, a psychotherapist, and he he studied the whole. um development uh including big pharma um getting involved the dsm from start to finish the icd in the in the world health organization which is the equivalent of the dsm the development of all the diagnoses and the and like some of the stuff you know the stories that you read in there about how they came up with the diagnosis you know like sitting around the table talking about Oh, if you've had this for three months? No, it's six months. No, what? How do you measure the intensity of this? And how do you tick six of the nine criteria for borderline personality disorder? These people really think that they've got something medically wrong with them. You know, it's kind of if you read that, the whole thing just falls apart. You know, I'm not saying, by the way that anyone's malicious, I, I know for a fact all these people have got good intentions, yeah. and I'm not and I'm not saying that people don't pre, um, present behaviors that are antisocial or destructive, they do, but that, that the cause of them is not mental illness, you know?
1: Yeah, and I think this is, we really need to get this topic out there because I feel the same way with you, Jason, is we need to start researching, we need to start questioning things. You know, when a doctor get, tells us we're, we, we have this diagnosis, Question that doctor and say, well, why do you feel I have this? You know, kind of understand a little bit because for the longest time I was diagnosed with, conver- I, I've been diagnosed with conversion disorder. And a lot of times I'm like, okay, well, what is it? For for years I asked the doctor, what is it? And they were like, it's crazy in the head. And I was like, okay, so I'm a crazy person. Thank you for letting me know. But they never really let you know what the diagnoses are because they're, they're, they're just guessing. They They actually don't yeah. know.
0: Yeah. And, and the, the, the other thing about this, I was saying it before, but you, you kind of pointed out, you know, a person, like, let's say a person, it, it's more what I would call um, a measure of where somebody is at, not who they are, you know, yeah. but what happens is it becomes a permanent part of their identity. Now, it's like, you go to a professional, right? And you say, this is a funny one. I mean, you'll see this. You go to a professional and, and you say, I'm doing this, you know, this is how I'm behaving. This is how I'm thinking. This is how I'm feeling. Oh, how long have you been doing it for? How intense is it? How long has it lasted for? So they they go through the list of criteria in the DSM and they tick it off and they tick it off and they go, okay, here's what it is. They give you a code for your insurance in the US, not in the UK, and they give you a, a diagnosis, right? And then you, you as an innocent individual, go away saying, I do this because of that, but that, what I've been given, is only a description. Yep. It can never be the cause, it was only a description and it was only a subjective opinion at best. You know, it was only a description to start with. You went there and you described what you were doing. Someone gave you a description that's called a diagnosis, but you then go away thinking that the diagnosis is the reason that you're doing it. it was How could it ever be a reason? It was only ever a description to start <laughs> right? with. It could never be the cause. It just couldn't be that.
1: And I think that's where you, I think that's where it hit you that you didn't need those 12 steps because there was nothing actually wrong with you you were just hurting you were you were extreme you were from grief like you had a loss that you didn't understand and it wasn't ever explained to you because grief is not explained to us no. you, you know uh, we lose people every day and then we're all confused what is grief well if we're not ever educated on grief just like we're not educated on mental health how can we move forward how can we really push through those steps right to understand
0: Yeah, for sure. And again, I want to clarify, you know, 12 Steps is beautiful. It it saves so many people's lives, including my own and lots of my friends and, and beautiful people that I've met along the way. But, like, at some point, you can wake up to something beyond that. At some point, you can wake up to there being a deeper truth, you know, that you're you're not a flawed individual that needs fixing or you don't have an unexplainable disease that no one can really tell you why. There really is an answer to everything, you know. It's like things can make sense, you know. Like, if you've suffered with a trauma, an experience or adversity in childhood or you've learned to cope in, in difficult circumstances, it probably shows up in your adult life as... As, as painful relationships, as a, a, a difficult relationship with yourself or the world outside yourself, you know, it's kind of like there, there's always a clear connection between the two things in people that I work with. I've never failed in anyone that I've worked with to see a connection between what, how they were brought what they learned to believe about themselves or the world and what they're suffering with now, always.
1: Well, and then when we get into a pattern, too, we're not actually healing ourselves anymore. We're not actually working on yeah. ourselves We're just it's a routine, right? It's a schedule. It's like taking a pill for the next twenty years. You're just taking that pill, but what is that pill actually doing? Are you willing to take that next step to try and get off that pill, lower the doses of that medication? You know what I mean? Or completely get off the medication. And it's like you said with the twelve steps, you just woke up and you're like, No, I'm I don't need this. And and at no time am I saying that twelve steps is bad. I'm just saying that we need to actually stop the enabling of ourselves and actually step up and say, you know what, let's change. Okay. We've done this for a while now, you know, but we need to find new steps, new tools, new tips. And we have to really look like it's within, like you, you said, wherever it is in our knee and our ankle and our, it just needs to come out. Right. And yeah. if we don't ever let it out, how do we actually move forward? Because Jason, if you wouldn't have never let it come out, you would have never got to where you are today. You would have stayed stuck in that in that pattern of just saying, you know what, it's me, it's me, it's me. And you use the word broken. And I use that a lot. And a lot of people tell me, Miss Liz, don't use broken. And I'm like, broken is beautiful because we all have to break in order to heal, in order to seal, in order to find solutions to grow. So why are we so scared of the word broken? Because we're all broken. We're all human beings. We all break it sometime, right?
0: Yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, there's semantics and wordplay and stuff. Some people have attached a meaning to certain words and they feel strongly about it, you know, about what it means. But I think, like, what's important is the sentiment behind what you're saying, you know. is what you're saying is, like, you know, broken often. It's like I heard a... I know it was a Chinese proverb or something the other day where it was talking about a vase that broke and it got pieced and instead of just throwing it away, it gets pieced back together, you know, and becomes something more beautiful than it was, you know, it's kind of like because the creation and all the fixing and the glue that holds it together and everything is all part of its beauty, you know, and I think that's what you're saying about the human experience is that the darkness really points us to light. You know, it's kind of like, it really does. That's why I said addiction is like the lost man's way to enlightenment because, you know, I could never say that I would wish the loss or the suffering that I had on anyone in order for them to find happiness. But looking back in hindsight, I can feel grateful for what happened. I can feel grateful for the loss. I can feel grateful. I can feel it in so many ways, you know, like the presence um, that I have with my children, the love that I have for my children, the the uh, relationship that I have with them, that's all a result of what happened with the loss of my own dad. I probably wouldn't feel so strongly... And, um, hold it so cherish it so much in my heart as i do you know if i hadn't really known what it was to lose somebody you know a dad and how important the role of a dad is in small children you know it's kind of like that's that's a beautiful gift You right i can't i yeah. can't ever deny that you know
1: so jason i want to get into your tea if i ask you what your tea is today what words do you have for me
0: I was thinking about this when you said it before. You know, uh, the way, the immediate word that comes in for tea is therapeutic, and 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 like that might like sound abstract to some, you know, but I I just really mean it in the context of the healing properties of a therapeutic relationship. And it doesn't mean you have to pay somebody therapeutic. Doesn't necessarily mean therapist. You know, to me it means. The, the the healing properties of being seen and present in a relationship with somebody. You know, it's like you talked about before, we all want to be seen, we all want to be heard. But, you know, that's really what healing is. It's being seen, it's being heard, it's being felt, it's like being noticed. It's the feeling, the presence of another human being. Now, what what I call in the presence of presence, you know, it's like when you are in the presence of presence, there's such a healing quality to that, you know. So that was my my tea you know e um what i would say empathic because it's one of the gifts you know that i've had another gift that i've had of all this experience that i've been through you know it's kind of like i i feel that i'm so sensitive you know to um to really um feeling people's struggles and pain you know that it's such a gift to me you know and a i would say it was achieve you know and i and i think it's because like particularly when like we've talked about with broken and stuff you know it's kind of like that you can achieve anything you know and it's often the area where a lot of us feel um restricted and like you know and and kind of um stuck and living in what i call pipe dreams just ideas of brilliance and so on you know, thinking that i can never make it and but other people can but actually we can achieve Anything, you know, the only thing that ever stops us is our own belief about who we are and what what it would take. You know, it's kind of like, but I've witnessed miracles. I've witnessed a lifetime of miracles of people achieving things that were previously thought unachievable. You know, so I love the word achieve, you know, and I don't mean it in a material possessions kind of way. I just mean in a beyond what you believe true possible, you know.
1: And what did you give me for the E? Empathic. Oh, there we go. Yeah, And why that word, Jason?
0: Empathic is really about kind of a gift for me, you know, about being able to really see and hear people and be with people and sense people's struggles beyond the words, beyond the presenting behavior, you know. It's kind of like not really in judgment or in criticism or in reaction to people that are kind of behaving in that way, but a deeper seeing of somebody hurting, you know, and I think that's been such a gift for me.
1: We do have a comment here. I want to share it with you. How do you feel about this comment, Jason?
0: The process of therapy and self betterment a righteous cause. I don't know. What do you make of that? I'll just show it before I answer. What, what, what do you What do you think that means?
1: Uh, I'm I'm guessing that the. The righteous cause of of healing ourselves right the process of therapy is different for everybody and and the way that we look at it right because what might work for somebody else might not work for us in our situation so i think looking for the betterment of therapy that heals within ourselves again within it's in the knee the arm wherever it is it needs to come out right So how do you feel about that?
0: I mean, like everyone, I mean, what's important, I don't think I've really touched on it that much, is that when I was in L.A. with Michael, what I realized is, you know, that life is an inside-out experience. It's not an outside-in experience. That life is created inside of us all the time, 100% of the time. All experience is created within the only outside world i.e. outside of my mind that i experience is via perception nothing else you know it's kind of like so if there's a you know it's what victor frankl called the in in the book man searches for meaning the stimulus between experience and perception you know that's what he's talking about is perception so everything in the outside world is perceived by me that means that i'm in full control of my own experience you know and and, and everything it's never them someone else what they did what happened it's always what i perceive to happen now in that case we are all having a subjective experience of being human you know that's true it's kind of like so whatever works for you whatever it is you know it's kind of like 12 steps works for you beautiful i'm not one to to say anything bad if psychiatry has helped you beautiful it certainly helped me at a time you know it's kind of like it's what i mistakenly took from it you know without being better informed at the time you know um so all these things are kind of like what were my journey you know they're not really a way of saying that this is the way there is no way it's kind of the the way is the way that you find you know it's like it's always going to be like that
1: well it's with that within again right it's whatever works for you You know uh, and I think that's where a lot of healing a lot of people will say well I can fix you I can fix you No, it it, nobody can fix anybody we have to fix ourselves we have to do the research we have to look and see what works for us and what doesn't work for us because like you said the 12 steps worked for you for a while and then after it was like you know what this is not my cup of tea anymore I'm just gonna I'm gonna go dig a little deeper so what have you learned about your story about yourself Jason in the process
0: One of the things that like people often say to me is um, you're the first person that's ever said to me, I'm not broken. I make it very clear, you know, and and I know you used the word broken in a different way before, but like uh, what I'm kind of saying is, is that, um, you know, they've often interpreted from previous experiences that they've had. This is in a long way of answering your question about myself. You know, it's kind of like that that there's something wrong with them. You know, I'm the first person that said, there's nothing wrong with you. Everything that's been happening has been your own intelligence responding to life, you know? And uh, that's kind of the thing that I've learned, you know? It's like, no matter what happens in my life, I'm not exempt from being human. I still have my moments, for sure. You know, it's kind of like uh, with my kids, you know, (laughs) particularly, they they challenge me in the best possible way, you know, to be better. And uh, my girlfriend and stuff, and it's like... Um there's always, always, always a deep knowing that this moment now feels a bit uncomfortable, it's gonna pass. And uh, I'm okay regardless. I'm okay losing a job, I'm okay losing my house, I'm okay losing things that I want, I'm okay with things not working out, you know, it's kinda they don't feel nice in the moment, but I have a different relationship with my experience. It doesn't define me, it's not who I am, and there's always a natural place of equilibrium to return to that will happen pretty quickly. If I don't meddle in my experience, there's nothing I need to do. I don't need to fix myself. You know, I'm having a moment, an emotional moment or an angry moment or something's happening, but pretty soon I'll restore, I'll be restored to sanity, you know? And the knowing of that, um, supersedes all experience it's something deep inside me that kind of that as i get caught up in something i just remember and i think oh yeah okay i know what this is you know and it's like and doesn't ex- like i said doesn't exempt me from experience but i'm not i don't need to be exempted from experience i'm, I'm still pretty okay with my humanness you know um and that's what i feel all this has given me is that ground what i call grounding in 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 knowing that i'm okay regardless you know
1: Well, and I think we all need to feel the experience, you know, stop putting a bandaid on the experience and just let it teach us what it's supposed to teach us because Mm -hmm. with pain, it teaches us, right? It teaches us a lesson of there's deeper work to be done. There's something here that's not right, you know, but it doesn't mean that it needs to fix us. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us. It just means that there's an experience that we have to go through in order to get to the next level.
0: Yeah, every every single struggle, no matter what, no matter how bad another person behaves, every single jarring experience, everything you feel around, everything you have a fear or an insecurity or a pain about is there to show you something about yourself where you've innocently tried to protect an apparently flawed part of yourself that isn't damaged. You know, it's like, but it's a a habitual way you learn to be okay in the world. And like you said, life is just always holding up a mirror to us. And it's like that mirror is like this, you know, it's kind of like, that here's the situation what happened it's reflecting something back to me what is it reflecting back to me somewhere where i feel inadequate i feel flawed i feel broken i feel inadequate it's kind of like, that's what it's mirroring back to me and then i've reacted to try and cover that up every single thing that's all that's happening as a human being that's the only thing that will ever happen in your life experience you know that's it well, i and think what... as
1: as individuals we've been programmed to cover that mirror yeah and not yes, look sure. in the yeah. mirror
0: because we point the finger, right? It's your fault. If you hadn't have done this, if you hadn't have done that, if they hadn't have done this, if this person hadn't let me down again and again, if they hadn't spoke to me this way, uh, if they hadn't have not paid me, the long list of things that other people do, you know, it's kind of like we create that you know it's self-fulfilling prophecy every single time and it's always in service of us discovering that hidden apparently flawed separate part of ourselves that's what it's that's why we create those things you know it's kind of uh this is a real difficult people difficult for people to look at you know it's like because they go "Ah, i didn't create that the way they spoke to me that's nothing to do with me it's kind of like There's a gift in it, you know, when you're willing to look inwardly, when you're willing to look into yourself, there's a beautiful gift where life can become more joyful and more peaceful and more calm, you know, like when you're willing to look until then, you'll feel at odds. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You know, it's kind of like, that's all you're going to do. And the only person that's going to suffer is yourself, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, it's that taking accountability for our lives, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And I think that's where we really need to take a charge in our life is take accountability, you know, take ownership and stop covering the mirror and actually look in the mirror. Because I think that's where the within is. I think the mirror is the within us that we're always covering up. We're always banding putting a bandaid on, you know, so we need to find solutions on how to heal. And that by just looking in that mirror and saying, hey, this is who I am and let me fix myself you know but it's not fixing ourselves it's it's actually understanding ourselves as an individual right uh,
0: there's two things i always say one is the most challenging thing you'll ever do is meet yourself and that's what you're talking about the most challenging thing you will ever do is meet yourself as you are and the heaviest thing you'll ever carry is the weight of your own thoughts you know, that is it. It's kind of like those two things, that's what's going on. You know, the heaviest thing you're ever carrying is the weight of your own thoughts about yourself, about the world, about everything. And the most difficult thing, the thing that everybody runs away from, the reason that we uh, were, you know, a lot of this stuff that we've talked about today is apparent is because the, we, we don't want to meet ourselves. We're scared of meeting ourselves as we are because we, as we are, don't fit into traditional models of men and women or human beings in the world as they should be to be successful, powerful, all these ideas, all the ideas that have been impressioned onto us by the conditioning that we've received, you know? So we, we spend our whole life escaping our true self as we really are, you know?
1: Yeah. So any final words before we wrap up your tea time, Jason? An hour has just flown by, like I could talk mm-hmm. for a couple more hours on this topic. Uh, yeah. I, I love the human behavior because we really don't truly understand it because we don't truly look within ourselves, you know? Uh, so any final words before we wrap up your tea time?
0: Yeah. It, I mean, today's conversation has really been about looking towards simplicity rather than complexity. You know, the, the human mind is obsessed with making things more complicated because it seems like the you know, the problem is big. So the solution has to be big. What happens is we don't look in the right direction. There's 500 or more, perhaps 600 talking therapies, right? That tells you that man is infinite, cre- infinitely creative. There's, I think there's 180 plus diagnoses in the DSM man mm-hmm. is infinitely creative at finding solutions to problems, but no one has ever said let's look towards a more simple solution it's kind of we're looking in the wrong direction being more creative making it more complicated how about looking to simplicity you know it's kind of like what we're talking about today is challenging because it's asking us to not be more complicated and not be more complex and not create and go towards these new complex solutions that offer these wonderful answers but to see that what's, what's apparently wrong with us is just an installation of the conditioning that we've received and actually all the answers that we've ever looked for are in the simplicity of just knowing ourselves you know
1: Yeah. well I want to thank you Jason for joining me today on Tea Time and sharing this because I feel that we really got some good education out there for people just to research and I see a theme because this morning too uh, with Michael and Judy we, we we were saying that people need to start researching start looking You know, stop waiting for the answers to fall on your lap. Actually look for them yourself. You know, work within yourself. Take some accountability. And I think that's where we're going today with these tea times is that accountability and searching for answers and solutions and that within ourselves. So, again, thank you, Jason, for joining me on Tea Time. Thank you for all the viewers and listeners out there who have given some questions. Really appreciate it. And if you're watching the replay, please push in hashtag replay and let me know where you're tuning in from because I always like to hear where you're tuning in from. And I'll see everybody again tonight at 7 p.m. for the final show of this week's Thursday where um, Marilyn crates is going to be joining me and we'll be talking about grief. So I, I I see an alignment today with all of the tea times just falling into place. So we started in the morning, the afternoon and in the evening. So the evening, we're going to close it up with some grief. So again, thank you, Jason, for joining me for tea time.
0: Thank and you.
1: Uh, thank you everyone for supporting tea time and share this tea time, because I feel that there's a lot of information in this tea time that can help a lot of people. So again, thank you, Jason. Don't leave. I'm just going to close up the tea time.
0: All right.